to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the Ann Campaign. Justin, how are you? Did you have a good Father's Day? I had a really good Father's Day. As you know, I, I had just had my third not long ago, and so it was a good time. I got to hang out with my father as well, and uh, you know, we uh, got some dinner, talked, and, and really just enjoyed each other. So it was good, man. Thanks for asking. How about yours, man? This is your first. Yeah, yeah, it was good. It was good. We uh, We had a real good time. Even got the fam out to uh, a museum. There was an exhibit I wanted to see, and uh, and Melissa was real gracious with that. So uh, yeah, we, we had a we had a great time. But looking forward to this week's episode of the podcast. Have quite a few issues to discuss. Let's just jump right into it, Justin. I guess the first thing to cover is over the last few weeks we've been tracking this move in the Democratic Party to the left, and particularly among the 2020 candidates to the left on abortion. And this is something that generally happens in a primary, not always on this issue, but, you know, we have a two-year presidential campaign cycle, especially in a primary like this one where we have 20-plus candidates and they all have to try and stick out. Uh, it, it, It creates an environment where, they're all vying to uh, become the candidate on a certain issue. And so we saw weeks ago Senator Kamala Harris propose that she would uh, support Department of Justice preclearance, state pro-life laws, which is uh, typically a tactic, a, a leverage point that has been used uh, around Jim Crow legislation. So Senator Harris wants to use uh, legal techniques that were basically developed to combat Jim Crow, to combat pro-life laws. Uh, so that that's a pretty <laughs> extraordinary thing. But she got praise from, from the far left and the pro-choice uh, activist community. We saw, of course, Joe Biden get hounded for his position on Hyde. And then uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, speaking to the Des Moines Register editorial board, was asked whether she thought it was appropriate to have a litmus test for judges that they support Roe and that they're pro-choice. The Someone on the editorial board said, you know, in the past, this has been something that Democrats have been wary of, uh, that judges should be independent and uh, shouldn't prejudge cases. Why do you think uh, why do you have a different position when it comes to to Roe and to choice? And Gillibrand said that it was wrong to deny women basic human rights. And she said, I think there are some issues that have such moral clarity that we have as a society decided that the other side is not acceptable. Imagine saying it's okay to appoint a judge who's racist or anti-Semitic or homophobic Asking someone to appoint someone who takes away basic human rights of any group of people in America, I don't think those are political issues anymore. 
all these efforts by President Trump and other radical conservative judges and justices to impose their faith on Americans is contrary to our Constitution. Just I'll, t- I'll toss it over to you. What, what does th- this kind of statement from Gillibrand, who I know, you know, has been through several stages of her career. She was a lawyer for the tobacco industry for a while, and then you know she was a moderate pro-gun Democrat representing a swing district in upstate New York, and then she became senator based on that moderate record and has moved to the left in advance of her 2020 run. And, you know, now she's saying something that uh, almost certainly would not get her elected in her own past congressional district. What did you think when you saw this? First thing I thought, man, was just uh, folks need to chill out. Can we please give the racism comparisons a break? Um, I want everybody to stop with the race comparisons for the next six months and focus on real racism, not these comparisons used to move an unrelated cause forward. Right. There is a big difference between an immutable trait like race and a decision, a moral decision that people think is right or wrong. Right. right. So that comparison yeah. is just terrible. I'm sick uh-huh. of hearing, you know, abortion on on demand is a race issue. The green the new green deal is a race issue. Saving the freckled beak pigeon is a race mm-hmm. issue because Mike Tyson likes pigeons. Right. Like, come on, man. Right. It just gets old. And I understand that race is a strong and provocative issue. It has a provocative narrative. But give it a break because there are real issues that deal with race uh, that you guys aren't really addressing in the way that you should. It's manipulative. I mean, plain and simple. Um, And so, you know, in a way, uh, this is a cry for attention. As you pointed out earlier, this is the moans of a struggling campaign that's dealing possibly with the reality of its impending demise. And so I think that's part of it to a certain extent. But at the same time, this is this is where a good portion of the progressive leadership class seems to be headed on this particular issue. Um, I hope I'm wrong, but I, I didn't see a whole bunch of people correcting her within that ideological tribe. And so it, it's something that is more and more acceptable to say. People yeah. can be d- judges and have different, different opinions than you. Uh, can they hate someone based on an immutable trait? No, but that's very different than having a, an opinion that is uh, not the same as yours on a uh, an issue of, uh, you know, moral consequence. So that comparison yeah. is just bad. She should know better. As you said earlier, this is somebody who supported the tobacco industry, um, you know, was was on the, the other side of the immigration conversation, who was really known as a moderate to, to conservative Democrat when she was in the House. So for her, it's, it's OK for her to, to, to change her opinion. And that happens. We saw that with uh, Lyndon, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was the who became the civil rights president after supporting segregation for years. That happens. And I'm not going to necessarily question her veracity, although I will say that some of these changes seem a little bit convenient. And, and, and we have to say that just as voters and having a sense of discernment. Right. We don't have to take everything for, for what's said. But to just come at it with this type of vitriol, uh, to almost say that people who disagree with you on an issue where America is split almost 50 50, uh, to say that they don't deserve to be in the public square, don't deserve to be heard. It's just altogether ridiculous. And it's hard for me to take, you know, a campaign seriously when you're going to base your campaign on those type of type of statements. 
And I think the people who have based their campaign on being the furthest to the left on this one upmanship to say, I'm the real progressive. I can say something further out in, in left field than you. I think the people who have done that and concentrated on that have suffered for it. You know, if we look at the polls, they've gone, some of them have gone down in the polls when you base your campaign on that. So I think this is a, you know, it's coming from a struggling campaign. It's unfortunate that she feels that she has to approach a very serious issue that needs to have a, a deeper and, and more civil dialogue to approach it in this way. And it's a, it's a reflection of the campaign. It's a f- reflection of why the campaign is at where it is right now. Two things. Uh, one, it was especially disappointing for me. Gillibrand is someone who, who talks sometimes, and it's well known that she regularly attends the bipartisan Senate prayer breakfast where folks on both sides of the aisle, uh, senators give their testimony. And, and there are a lot of stories about the greater understanding that comes out of that. I happen to know uh, that, that Gillibrand has attended some pretty robust churches in her, in her life uh, and been a part of some really robust Christian communities. Uh, and so it's just disappointing for political purposes for, for someone to, 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 to tell folks that she's praying with every week, tell folks that she's, um, that she's gone to church with, that they're like outs, like not just that they're wrong, but that they're outside of discussion that, that their view shouldn't even be considered. And of course, right, Justin, it's all a big, it's all a big game. Like, Clearly, the debate hasn't been settled in this country on Roe. We've had 45 years of intense after a Supreme Court decision. So, you know, uh, to the extent that you think court decisions are democratic, and I believe there's democratic aspects to them. You know, we elect a president who nominates Supreme Court justices. So I'm not one of those people who says it's entirely undemocratic. But but. Let's just be clear that Roe didn't happen on a federal level from uh, a legislative action. It didn't happen from a public referendum. Uh, And so to say that, oh, since the Supreme Court decision, this debate is over, we can't talk about it anymore, uh, when the polling is is really close to 50-50, and depending on the question, it's, you know, 70 to 30 want additional restrictions uh, on on row, uh, that's disappointing. Uh, and then the, you know, the the second thing I'd say about uh, Gillibrand is, you know, she's she's really struggling uh, in in the polls, uh, Justin. Like you like you said, you know, the second thing I'd say, Justin, is, you know, for all of the, you know, I, I try and not do this all the time because you don't want people to feel pressure for speaking out on everything. And certainly there are things I don't tweet about, not because I don't think they're important, but, you know, because I don't feel I have anything to add, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I will say on this case, there are so many folks on Twitter that are every time uh, a pro-life a person mm. says something that just isn't completely nuanced in exactly the right way, Every time that a, a, a Christian or a pastor says something that doesn't exactly bring the full weight of political wisdom to bear on the situation, you, you got folks who will, you know, be blasting that person on end and saying, you know, real Christians shouldn't talk like this, dun, dun, dun. And, uh, Justin, there was, 
there was complete silence from some of the most vocal, frankly, you know, Christian, even evangelical, but, you know, a moderate to progressive uh, evangelical uh, wings of Twitter, like complete silence on this. And look, if you're pressing Republicans to speak up when the, when they're not speaking uh, the, the right way, when, when they're not considering all the different factors involved, when they're using this issue as, uh, as a wedge or as a weapon, then, I mean, just, just talk up about your own side. Like say, say something about Like this wasn't, (laughs) this wasn't like an on the fence comment. Gillibrand literally said, if you disagree with her, you don't belong in public debate. That the the debate's over, that we've decided this issue and you better, you know, be quiet and get in line. Like that, that deserves a call out, especially if you're someone who's been saying you're going to support a Democrat in 2020. Uh, and so, so, so that would be what I'd close with. Like, what? This is a great opportunity for people to show some level of political independence. <laughs> Donald Trump's not going to get elected because Joe Brand, who's polling zero or one percent, depending on the poll, you know, you say that she shouldn't tell half the country uh, that that they don't belong in the public square on this issue. In fact, you may be helping the Democratic Party because last time I checked, it's not the best electoral strategy to, to tell half the country th- that they need to get lost. <laughs> I, I, I thought yeah. we learned that the last time around. Yeah, I mean, especially if, if you're part of this call out culture, which I you know, I don't I'm with you, I don't really support that call out culture, especially the social media call out culture. But if that's the culture that you've chosen, if that's the the lane that you're in then you got to you got to call it how you see it. Right. I mean, and what this tells us about people who will, you know, if this were on the other side, there's a lot of people say, oh, you know, she went to your church. You need to call her out since you let her near your church two yeah. years ago. Right. Yeah, right, right. Um, but, but you don't hear that. And what it tells us about folks is that is who they're seeking validation from. Hmm. Right. If you're seeking validation from secular folks in your tribe, then you're not going to call her out. Right. Because right. you don't want to get drugged. You don't want to look like. Uh, you know, you're helping out the other side when really all you're do- doing is telling the truth, which is what truth telling is all about. Right? right. Truth telling. And we hear this so much, but truth telling isn't just about calling out the folks on the other side. It's about saying what you need to on your side. And I've noticed just in this debate in general, a lot of people haven't said anything. And that's fine. I mean, there may be folks working at their church and explaining things to people. That's cool. There's a yeah, lot right. of issues that I feel very, uh, you know, I feel a very have a very serious and, and um uh, I take a side on that. I don't necessarily need to say it on, on Twitter on, on anywhere on social media, but if that's your bag and you want to call everybody else out when they don't do that, then you need to, you know, you need to be a little more even handed and show that you're willing to, to do that on both ends. Cause this was an egregious, egregious statement that she made. And I don't understand how you can say things like this and think that people who are in the moderate to conservative side of some of these uh, social conversations should ever vote for you when you say they shouldn't even be in the public square. Um, And for someone who, with her record, uh, to be in this position and saying the things that she said and knowing that she goes to these faith breakfasts and and, and intermingles with with some of these folks, it it also shows you just how political ambition and the opportunity for higher office just does a number on 
you know, on 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 us personally, on how we mm-hmm. uphold our convictions and things of that nature. And so I would yeah. say this to anybody listening, if you ever want to run for office or be in civic leadership, promise yourself that you will tell it like it is on both sides and not get into a situation where people hold out uh, a, a political opportunity in front of you and then you become a different person. Yeah. Uh, that's something that's easier said than done, but it's something that you should be deliberate about if you want that type of responsibility. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll, we'll close that subject for this episode. When we get back, we're going to talk about the state of the 2020 race in terms of polling and talk about the upcoming debates and how uh, the schedule has been announced. So we'll talk about how the debates break down. This is the church politics podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And Justin, we've had quite a bit of polling, both national polls and state polls. Uh, And I I think we have a pretty good sense of the state of both the primary and then, you know, looking ahead, a sense of, you know, the challenges that Trump is going to face with with reelection. You know, just a, a, a few points and then I'm interested what you're seeing in the polls, but I think it's at a national level and at the state level. Biden is the clear front runner, uh, but he obviously has not uh, does not have sort of control of the narrative and of the primary in the same way that, say, uh, Hillary had in 2016 or frankly, even that Hillary had in 2008, by which I mean Biden, in in my view, looks more vulnerable than Clinton did in either 2008 or 2016. That doesn't mean he's inevitably going to fall. It just means that what we have a much more sort of split up uh, primary that's due in part to the number of candidates. It's also, I think, reflective of the state of the Democratic Party right now. There are some pretty robust arguments. There are various constituencies that... Uh, that, that have a, a candidate or group of candidates that they're looking at. but So that would be the first thing I'd point out. Uh, second, I'd say I think the one of the dominant deciding sort of primary within a primary uh, uh, battles that we're seeing is between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And there have been some signs that Elizabeth Warren, honestly, to my surprise a bit, especially early this uh, this early on, that Warren is already beginning to potentially overtake Bernie. Uh, not on national polls yet, but there have been a couple state polls that have shown Warren polling at or even above Bernie, which is just a significant thing to watch. One of the big questions coming into this primary was just where Bernie's floor was. And if Bernie's floor is at 20 22%, then he, he had a real pathway to the primary. Uh, sort of this idea that he had a, a very dedicated uh, you know, base backing him. But if, if his floor is more like 12 14%, then that opens up the progressive lane quite a bit. And so watch that Warren Sanders primary. And then the third thing I'm, I'm looking at is 
Buttigieg and Harris seem to be the clear number three and number four. Harris's campaign has always been strong structurally and strategically. She doesn't seem to be resonating as much as you would want to see. You would want to see someone with her intangibles and with her uh, sort of uh, with her infrastructure. But but we have to keep an eye on that. And then Buttigieg just. Uh, I, I think the story with Buttigieg, Justin, is that this is a candidate who took advantage of his moment when he had it. And many other of these uh, candidates, it's a long primary, uh, many other of these candidates are going to have their moment. The real difference is going to be what they do with it. Um, and so, again, you know, we're seeing in the polling pretty clearly a clear top five. I said top four before. I meant top five. And that's Biden, Sanders, Warren, Buttigieg, and Harris. That's holding relatively consistently across the states. And so we're not seeing a Klobuchar, for instance, doing super well in Iowa because she's in a neighboring state. We're seeing sort of the national debate really affecting how, how the states are considering the candidates so far. But, but, but Justin, what, what have, what have uh, you seen in the polls? Is there anything that's, that surprised you? Yeah, if if I had to choose two people that uh, should be worried that I didn't expect to be worried at this point, it's certainly Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders. Hmm. I'm with you. I didn't expect uh, Elizabeth Warren to jump up on Bernie this quickly or at all, really. Uh, like you said, Bernie was one of those people who had a solidified base before this campaign even started. Right. right. From the last election, he had a solidified base. So you would expect him to be in that one, two category of uh, the whole time, at least early on. Yeah. Uh, and if that br- basis is kind of breaking off for whatever reason and seeing uh, and seeing Elizabeth Warren as a viable candidate. He's in trouble. He needs to be worried about that. And when you get to Kamala Harris, you said it. I mean, she has a lot of the establishment behind her. Uh, she was someone because of the, you know, because of who she is and her her profile that you would think almost had a solidified base. Uh, but w- from the from the polls that I'm seeing, she's losing in California. Uh, she's that's you know right. that's that's a that's big right. deal to be losing in her home state. Yeah, does not send a good message. And similar to Gillibrand, I think she's right now somewhat a victim of just jumping on the farthest left issue and not really having a core to why she's running. Mm. I think she's finding herself in that uh, kind of the Hillary Clinton position where you have to explain why are you running? Who are you? And she's mostly been kind of an establishment Democrat. Now she's trying to lean into the more progressive issues. And I just don't think it's coming off well. Again, we've talked over and over about the suggestion that uh, prostitution should be legalized with all the other issues she could have been talking about. I think that's just really hurting her. I mean, even when I talk to some, you know, some some uh, black females that that are around, a lot of them aren't just super excited about Kamala Harris for right. whatever reason. And you would think that that would be a constituency that she would automatically and she's still, still doing really well. Let's not be mistaken. Right. But you would think that was a constituency that she would automatically just completely uh, control. And that's that's not seeming to happen. So those two, I think Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris need to be worried. But Elizabeth Warren. Hey, her, 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 her saying seems to be that, look, I have a plan for that. Yeah. And she is when it comes to policy, she is proving herself to be the most substantive candidate on policy issues um, and taking the time and thinking through through these issues. You see others who are taking a little bit from this person and that person are just jumping on what what is new during that day. 
but she seems to have, have sitting down and really gotten this together to where people believe that she has a plan to change things. That's where you want to be. And you're at a, you're in a situation where you never want to peak too early either. Right. So, you know, the timing of all of this is going to be interesting. Uh, you know, I don't know that she has peaked, but she may be in a perfect position to come up at the right time. Uh, now that her name's out there, she seems to have gotten over that really bad start because she had a really bad start that, you know, it came with, uh, I think, her her rollout. She had like a like an ancestry, you know, right. report sure. that came out that showed she was like one one hundredth of, of Native American. And it was just a, a terrible rollout that I think was was counterproductive for what she was trying to accomplish. Many left her for dead after that was over because it was so bad and and it just really left a left a, a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth but she has seemed to come o- to overcome that i think Buttigieg has to be excited about about where he's at and we'll see if these other folks can find a way to sneak in there but those are the four to be paying attention to and by as for biden i agree with you he is in the lead but it just doesn't seem like a strong lead and i think you'll see in these debates he's gonna play he's gonna play not to make a mistake right, right? he's not gonna be super aggressive. I think it, it helps him that there's 10 people in each debate and you're not going to see him really attack or, or put himself in a position where he could make a mistake. Yeah. And, you know, one of the big, as you alluded to, one of the big turning points that this race is going to see is is next week when we have our first debates. And uh, basically how the DNC set this up is there are going to be uh, back-to-back debates. So there is no what they called in the last cycle, uh, you know, a kid's table where you have the, you know, a top tier of candidates who are all polling the best and then a, a bottom tier that, you know, debate at six o'clock uh, and not too many people watch. No, these will both be primetime debates uh, that were chosen randomly, although as we'll get into, it's one debate seems to be a, a bit more stacked than than another so yeah let's just get into it so on on june 26 the first democratic debate will take place and and here's the lineup i'm just going to run through the names it's cory booker julian castro bill de blasio who you know just announced a few weeks ago uh john delaney who announced years ago (laughs) tulsi gabbard jay inslee the governor of, of washington amy klobuchar Beto O'Rourke, Tim Ryan, and Elizabeth Warren. So that's night one. And and actually, just I'll, I'll stop there. Anything that you think about this first night of debates, and I mean, the, the thing that sticks out to me is that Elizabeth Warren has a real shot here to really present herself as a front runner among this debate lineup, especially because it's the first debate. I think she has a chance to set the standard Though, because the debate is is a little uh, flatter, because you don't have Biden or Sanders in this debate, that they're they're going to be on night two. I think Cory Booker is going to have a moment, at least a moment, during this campaign. He's too talented of a politician not to, and so maybe this is the start of his moment. Julian Castro has been underwhelming so far, but he is a he was a former cabinet secretary under Obama, so maybe he. He has a good moment in this thing. And then the other two candidates I'd say we should watch out for are Amy Klobuchar and Beto. You know, Beto has had a, speaking of tough rollouts, he's had a, a very tough one. But maybe in this debate, he's able to remind 
Democratic voters, what uh, got them so excited about him in his Senate race against Ted Cruz. But Justin, how, how are you thinking about about night one? Yeah, my first thought is, is with you. Elizabeth Warren has the opportunity to look like the front runner where everybody's aiming at her because she's the highest within this group in the polls. And that's kind of what you want to, to a certain extent to have people really kind of focused on you and putting you up almost on a pedestal to say, oh, I am right. I am the I am the front runner. I am the one that you are all chasing. She has that opportunity. She, she doesn't have to go against Bernie Sanders. She doesn't have to go against Kamala Harris and Gillibrand and those folks. Uh, I, I think Cory Booker has an opportunity here. Uh, we'll see if he's able to take it. I, I would say that the he- there's more heavy hitters in the in the second night. This first night gives some folks an opportunity that they're going to need to take advantage of because you only have a certain amount of time to talk. There's 10 people. You have to say something that sticks. Mm. And we'll see how those people go about saying something that sticks. But I, I would say Cory Booker and, and Elizabeth Warren uh, lucked up, so to speak, yeah. and they should take advantage of yeah. it uh, because this first night gives them a, a good opportunity. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and just as a reminder, these candidates qualify for this debate by meeting donor threshold. And there's a polling threshold as well. Now, the DNC has said for future debates, those thresholds will be raised. And so some of the candidates who qualify for these debates, they may not qualify for future. But just to get to night two, we're looking at Michael Bennett, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, John Hickenlooper, Bernie Sanders, Eric Swalwell, Marianne Williamson, and Andrew Yang. You know, for me, this is a debate of, of contrast, which could be really difficult for some of the front runners. You have two candidates in Marianne Williamson and Andrew Yang who are not politicians, who are not going to speak and don't have the constraints that politicians have. Uh, and they frankly have nothing to lose. They don't need to get reelected. This is because of the culture around our presidential campaign. They're kind of winners no matter what. I mean, they're going to be on stage with the former vice president. And so that's going to be one of the most interesting things to me about this debate, which is you got all these front runners, all these very like uh, uh, seasoned politicians who are going to have the same amount of time as Andrew Yang and Marianne Williamson. And so that's that's one dynamic I'm watching for. And then, of course, you know, I think a lot of these candidates are going to be beaten up on Joe Biden. Although if you look down the line, Michael Bennett, John Hickenlooper, those aren't candidates that are going to be eager to beat up on Joe. And there are also candidates who are you know, the same criticisms that could apply to Joe Biden could apply to them too. And so Biden actually may not be as isolated in this debate as one might think with him being the front runner and, you know, with folks trying to get to his left. And so I'm really interested to see, you know, do, do Bennett or Hickenlooper kind of come to Biden's aid or or take some of the heat from him? That's a good point. I think two people that maybe a lot of people aren't paying attention to, but are substantive are Bennett and Hickenlooper. How will they try to stick out? How will they try to be heard? Again, you only have so much time. I was listening to a New York Times podcast last week and heard Andrew Yang on there. I came under the impression that all of his uh, ideas were crazy. Not all of them are crazy. He has some, he actually does have some, some decent ideas. Maybe he can get some of those out. Some of them are, are still, (laughs) but it would be interesting to hear, interesting to hear him because he'll shake it up, right? To have him 
close to Biden or be able to address Biden on the same right. stage is interesting and dangerous for somebody like Biden. Yeah. And so how will Gillibrand stick out? Will we will Gillibrand and Harris and some of these other folks go back to that saying the most you know far left thing that they can say rather than really getting at the substance of what the American people are talking yeah. about? Uh, because what we see a lot and this is going to be something for the moderators as well, asking questions that connect to the issues that American people care about. Because one of the things that we saw, you and I were looking at a poll not long ago, and some of the issues that we hear about all the time, the American people don't even care right. about. Right? They're not talking about those at all. And so that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be brought up. Maybe they should care more. But at some point, you have to connect to what the people are talking about, which is going to be the economy, healthcare, all those things. And you really don't stick out if you don't come with specifics or something that distinguishes you from from everyone else. So it would be interesting to be in some of the debate prep sessions for some of these candidates to see what their people are telling them and what angle to take. Some of these folks do not have the luxury of not coming out hard and really making an impact. All right. We're going to take one more break. We have one more conversation we want to get to. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And what we wanted to close with is just a a, a brief conversation about this Teen Vogue uh, article uh, with the headline, Why Sex Work is Real Work. This is part of uh, uh, an argument that has been increasingly made over recent uh, years in in a more public manner, uh, a pursuit for uh, the legalization of prostitution. I think I'll just say, like, I, I think there are some justice-oriented issues involved that m- make this a debate that should be able to be to be had. Uh, there are real concerns with a sort of underculture of sex work that is allowed to flourish that isn't being prosecuted to the extent that maybe it should be like, like we all know that this is happening in this country, but because it's sort of uh, in, in the dark, so to speak, these primarily women, but also others face real abuse in the system. And so there are some that say, look, let's bring this out into the open so that we can have regulations so that there could be a criminal justice involvement to protect prostitutes and sex workers. What was interesting and striking about this article, obviously, this argument was not uh, being had at the Boston Review or, you know, some kind of journal. No, this was at Teen Vogue, and it included some pretty ridiculous arguments, uh, including the argument from a doctor that she couldn't see any difference between her work as a doctor and what sex workers do because basically they're all just trying to help people. I, I was not following, uh, was not following on that. And actually, I, I don't want to don't want to misphrase. So I'm going to read it. She said that the quote is, "I find it interesting that as a medical doctor, I exchange payment in the form of money with people to provide them with advice and treatment for sex related problems, therapy for sexual performance." counseling and therapy for relationship problems and treatment of sexually transmitted infection 
isn't this basically sex work? That is her argument. She continued to say, is a medical degree really the right measure of who is deserving of dignity, autonomy, safety in the workplace, fair trade, and freedom of employment? Uh, Justin, I know we don't want to talk about this for, for too long, but um, but we did we did want to cover it, why this is happening, the message it, it sends to have something like this in in a magazine oriented specifically toward teens. Uh, so just I'll let you take it from take it from here. Teen Vogue is disgraceful, man. The things that they are trying to normalize among American preteens and teens are just outrageous. Um, and again, you have an instance, as you mentioned during the, the earlier conversation, where their ideological tribe seems to think it's cute. There's no social sanctions and nobody you know, is, is outraged on that end. Uh, you just kind of let it go. Uh, and so it's, it's really unfortunate. I think last year they had an article in Teen Vogue about the joys of, of, of uh, anal sex. They had another article about, you know, queer sex in the in this. I mean, you have 13 year olds reading right. this. It is crazy how both extremes give the other a shred of credibility. Right. When the moral majority was freaking out and saying that liberals wanted to corrupt society, this is actually what they were talking about. Now, I know that most of my liberal friends wouldn't support this, but too many folks are comfortable feeding this madness to children. As bad as the moral majority movement was in some respects, this is a manifestation of the fears that they were talking about. Right. So what what is going on here? I mean, number one, the argument that's made in the article is bad. Right. The <laughs> right. argument is just, just, just not strong. <laughs> you, you mentioned one part. In another part, she says, I'm a doctor, an expert in sexual health. But when you think about it, aren't I a sex? Aren't I a sex worker? And in some ways, aren't we right. all? Yes, aren't, aren't we, we all? all? No, yeah. that's not deep, right? Right. There's nothing deep about it. It's, it's ridiculous. It doesn't even make sense, right? So the only the only real purpose that this serves, if you ask me, is to normalize things right. within the culture and to get to get to uh, people as young as possible to normalize certain things. Right. So anybody who has a daughter or son, keep them away from Teen Vogue. Yeah. Uh, another quote that she had is this is a women's rights issue. If you support women's rights, I urge you to support global demand for sex work decriminalization and uh, and fund evidence and rights based intersectional programs aimed at sex workers and their clients. This is our politics in a nutshell. It goes back to something we talked about earlier. Tie any crazy effort to a larger, widely supported issue like women's right. rights, racial equity, and you get people to support foolishness just by association. Mm. Church politics listeners, please do not be manipulated in this way. Don't be so e easily influenced. I mean, I don't know if she's sat down with with women that have, have gone through the sex trafficking and, and, and how they felt and how they were abused. But the message here is, is basically that prostitution isn't all about objectify, objectified, exploited women and, and how women are treated without dignity and placed in drug infested and abusive situations. It's not all about that. There's a softer, more pleasant side, a more market friendly side right. to prostitution where where fantasies come true and the work is is actually dignified. Who are we no. kidding? Right. Like, I mean, the fact that something like this would come out in a magazine that that had had some level of a, of a decent reputation is is just ridiculous. Yeah. It almost seems that society that a certain section of society has lost its sense of discernment when it comes to what 
is appropriate for teenagers to be exposed to. Right. They should gradually learn about their bodies and intimate relationships and the consequences of sex. But it should be in measured doses that are constructed. These kids brains aren't even fully developed. And sex has always been something that's a heavy matter that is hard to process, especially sex outside of the proper context is not good for mental health. So to just put it out there like this is actually helping the young women who are who are reading this is unfortunate. I wish somebody on the left would stand up and say something because when somebody on the right says it, it doesn't mean anything. And the, and, it, and the same thing happens on the other side. But I will say in some positive news, just to change the subject just a little bit, uh, the New York governor, uh, Cuomo, uh, decided to kill the state bill that would have legalized prostitution in yeah. New York. Uh, he said that he didn't have time to educate himself on it before uh, the end of the session. I could probably think of a better reason to kill it, but I'll take that. <laughs> Uh, I do know that the Commission of Religious Leaders of New York, including uh, Pastor A.R. Bernard, uh, Cardinal uh, Dolan, uh, Bishop Victor Brown and others issued a statement in opposition to the legislation this week, uh, last week. Uh, and so shout out to them. Uh, those are our church folks, champ, church folk champs for this week. Uh, and here's what they said. They said countries worldwide. This is part of what they said. They said countries worldwide that have decriminalized or legalized prostitution acknowledge that such efforts have failed to such a degree that violence and sex trafficking have increased and the age of the trafficked victims has decreased. (laughs) We are deeply saddened that such a proposal would even be considered by our state elected representatives. And we reiterate our strong opposition to any such effort. Thank you for for speaking out. This is the way that church folks should engage uh, the public square. And I'm glad that somebody did on this issue. Just the last thing I'll say, which is, you know, the author of this piece really gives herself away at the end. This, this is how she closes her, her argument by saying evidence, quote, evidence, not morality, should guide law reforms and sex work policy for full sex work decriminalization. Uh, folks, when you hear someone say evidence, not morality, should guide public policymaking, uh, l- look, no one ever says uh, morality shouldn't guide our policy making decision when they when they think that morality is on their side <laughs> uh, right this is this is uh, like Justin said uh, in his reference to the earlier statement th- this is a form of manipulation all lawmaking as Justin often reminds us all laws are an expression of values and morality uh, don't ever put your morality to the side especially when it comes to questions like this, uh, that is not a requirement of our political system, and it certainly shouldn't be something that we do as Christians who have something good to bring to bear uh, on our politics uh, through our morality. All, all right, folks, that is, uh, we've covered a lot of ground. That is uh, the, the episode for this week. We're looking forward to continuing to travel through June uh, with you. Uh, next week we'll we'll have the debates and it'll be really exciting to see how that shakes out. Uh, until next week, hey folks, this is the Church Politics Podcast. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your support. Have a good week. This is the groove. Tell me, I'm scolding the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a